Today, as we uh, think our way and kind of process our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, we've been in that book for several months now, and we come to the middle of chapter 7. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open there. Uh, but if you've been with us, you know that chapters 6 and 7 and a little bit of chapter 8 gets into some awkward territory. And it's not awkward because necessarily of what it says. It's just awkward because our experience of life um, sometimes doesn't measure up to the things that we read or the things that, boy, there's things that, wow, my, my life falls short of that. And there's always an insecurity in us when we read God's word and it says this is what God's will is. And then we read our lives and we think this is not what my life is. And, and there's a tension there. And so chapter 6 and 7 uh, is very much focused on uh, sexuality, sexual ethics, uh, marriage, singleness, all of those things. And, and again, those get into some of the most tender parts of our life um, deep within us. And so uh, as we have done so, uh, it has been my prayer that we have approached these themes with tenderness, um, never trying to cast stones, never trying to be holier than anybody else, just realizing that we are all fallen, we are all broken, we all wrestle with these things. And so... Um, so it's my prayer that as we look today at this theme uh, of marriage and, and divorce and the things that Paul writes about, that we continue that theme. And I hope that you hear it that way as we present it. Um, and so if you would describe marriage in a word or two, I wonder what words you would use. Um, some of them might be a list of beautiful words. <laughs> some of them might be a list of not so beautiful words, right? Because uh, marriage is one of those places that uh, we have the uh, Hollywood... Um, media-produced ideal, right, of happiness, fulfillment, you complete me, as we looked at last week. Um, but most of us, if we're honest, we wrestle with, um, the, with the reality of this is what this is, right? This is a struggle. On my desk, I keep two pictures of my wife and I. Uh, one is on a mountaintop. We were at a retreat last year and uh, got to snap that picture. Um, the second is my wife with the sexy beast on the beach as well uh, from a vacation we took not long ago. And uh, that's me, in case you're wondering who that, that This wasn't some other man. It was me, but uh, that was sarcasm. Um, but it's, uh, <laughs> but I, I look at those pictures from time to time. And I think, wow, those were wonderful, wonderful moments, right? That's what, uh, maybe what I, I think marriage is, right? It's, it's wonderful, quiet places on a mountaintop. It's beautiful scenes on the beach. Um, it could be those things, and it should be. Hopefully, it is some of those things. But um, sometimes marriage is like Friday morning was. It's on you're sitting on the side of Highway 54, not far from ice cream for ice cream, uh, with a flat tire. It's pouring rain. Uh, we can't get the tire changed, having to wait on um, people to come help us. And I'm soaked, and I'm grumpy, and I'm tired. It's five o'clock in the morning because we wanted to beat the sun, beat the traffic, and get out there before all the crazies on Valley 54. And, and maybe that's what marriage is, right? It's the struggle. It's grumpiness. It's, it's working through all the frustrations and struggles of life and not always doing that so well. It can be all of those things. And so when we walk through the Bible, a Bible book, especially like 1 Corinthians, um, I appreciate doing this because sometimes if, if I set the agenda of, well, we're going to look at relationships and things, and I set the agenda of what that would be, I may not include this passage we're going to look at today because it's kind of awkward. It's a little uncomfortable with some things it says. But when you just walk through a book from beginning to end, inevitably God sets the agenda, and he asks us to talk about things and look at things that, that aren't always comfortable for us, um, and that's okay. Because if we always approach our faith just wanting to talk about the comfortable things, 
we're really not approaching God on his terms. We're coming to God on our terms. And so he invites us today, I think, to come to a theme that's relevant for all of us. Um, and this whole chapter, again, as we looked at last week, we introduced this chapter um, where Paul highlights the beauty and the awesomeness of sing- the single life. He also highlights the beauty of marriage and the awesomeness of that. And he says, you know what, God is in both of those things. And both of them are, are blessed by God and used by God. And, and they're just wonderful things. And so whatever place you find yourself in, give yourself fully to that. And so last week, we looked a little bit of the singleness. And next week, we're going to come back at the end of the chapter where he talks more about that. But today, in the middle of this chapter, he kind of focuses in on, on the marriage part of this. And uh, some issues that, again, they had asked Paul, that, hey, we've got these questions that, uh, <clears throat> questions, um, that uh, we want to send to you. And so they had sent a letter with three men to just ask Paul some questions. And he is addressing those things. And so, um, again, this whole theme of of the standard of the morality of the biblical ethic on sexuality and marriage and divorce and all of the things that go with our relationships. Uh, again, they sound very different to our culture, right? Our culture has a set of values and yet scripture comes with us. And, and in, in an America that's gone through a sexual revolution and, and the values have changed and they're just always floating and moving, um, this may um, sound a little different. And so... Um, how do I start, I guess, as Paul wrestles with these questions? Again, we, we kind of jumped into this last week. I don't want to review too much, but we jumped into it last week and, and reminded ourselves that Corinth uh, was a place that probably would have made most of us blush with its sexual ethics, with its practices, with the things that just went on in the life of the city. And so it, Paul is not writing to a group of people who just had their lives all together. And it all just, it wasn't a small step to follow Jesus. It was a big step to follow Jesus in this part of their life because it was so different from what they lived and experienced and witnessed in their culture. Um, and yet Paul had jumped in with grace and truth. He had come and preached, presented the gospel to them. Many of them had responded. And he, as he speaks on these issues, he reveals and he speaks directly and he offers hope and life uh, as he presents God's will through the gospel. And so the question really that we wrestle with is, is how do I start where I am? And that's really the theme. We're going to get to that verse next week, that, that the gospel really hits you where you are, right? It may change who you are, but it may not change your circumstances, right? You may come to Christ single, and Paul says, you just embrace that and go with that. You may come to Christ married, and both you and your spouse come to Christ, and, and you just need to embrace that. Or maybe you come to Christ, and your spouse does not come to Christ. And so there's a tension that he's going to talk about. So it's about, well, how does Jesus to take you in the, in the place that he calls you at and leads you forward into being uh, maybe right side up, if you want to use that analogy, of following Jesus, of turning an upside down world right side up into the will of God. And so um, I just want to put this theme up here as we think about this idea of marriage today, and we're going to get to our text in 1 Corinthians 7 in just a second, so maybe leave a finger there, but I want to hop around a little bit and just give you a reflection, because what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 is not the entirety of what the Bible says about marriage and relationships, but it certainly begins there. It certainly reflects other things that are said in what he says. And so I want to start there. And so what does it look like biblically to be right side up? Um, I just think whenever the Bible talks about marriage, uh, it does so in in a high and holy and happy standard. And that's what I, I think when you read through your Bible, and the Bible brings up the theme of marriage, most often when it's taught, when it's preached, when it's presented to us, marriage is presented to us as a high standard 
a holy standard and a happy standard. Um, and, and so when you read your scripture, that's part of that tension that we feel. Um, and we'll get to that part in a second. But I just wanted to think about that. Think of the, the higher standard that the Bible presents to us. As you read your scripture and you read some of the things we're going to read today, or you go back to Genesis chapter 2 even, where marriage is introduced um, in the creation story. In Genesis 2, you find this account. That the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the wild animals and all of the birds of the sky. And he brought them to the man, to Adam, to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds and the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, there was not found a helper compatible for, to him. And I like that phrasing. This is a New King James, I think, version that uses this translation, or this version, this wording, I should say. For Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, and Adam kind of breaks into song as he sees Eve for the first time. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Now I'll pause there. Every time I read this passage of scripture, I think of my friend from Bramer, Missouri, northern Missouri, who was kind of a, a hick, uh, a great guy, loved him to pieces. He lived in our dorm. But whenever he, he kind of put the, um, the redneck version on this word, it, what, he didn't say woman. He said it, it ca probably captures the idea that this is, whoa, man, okay, that, that kind of emphasis that, that she should be called, whoa, man, because... She was taken out of me, and she is like me, and she is someone compatible, comparable to me, right? Everybody else had their things out there, but this is one like me, who was not me, but who is comparable and compatible to me. And then Moses teaches this, that therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, and the man and his wife were not ashamed. And so you get this picture of this safe beautiful, intimate union that takes place. This, again, a high standard of, of what marriage is, is pictured to be in Scripture. The whole idea of corresponding to him or, or the idea of, is the idea of a rich word that means set up against, opposite from, but compatible with. They fit together, not just physically, but in every way, right? She is not just like him, but she corresponds with him. So there's this mutuality of who they are. And again, he breaks into songs. He realizes who she is and his, um, his attraction to her. And then there's this the word bond. It's the word joined, I guess, in the scripture we read there. It means they, they come together. And I don't know if you've ever tried to hang, hang, hang up stuff on your walls. You don't want to put a hole in your drywall. So you get those little sticky strip things that, that you kind of put on the wall, and it ha holds your hook. It does pretty good. Uh, and so that's one version of stickiness. But those tend, at least in my experience, to fall down eventually, uh, at least if I'm hanging them. Um, but then I want you to picture the idea of superglue, right? You ever get your fingers superglued together? And it's not a pleasant thing, right? It rips the skin off. There's a bond that is stronger than that little sticky strip that just pulls off with a little jerk. The, 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 the superglue is on your fingers for a long, long time, right? That's more of the picture of this word bond. It is a close, intimate, strong bond that is created. And so he says, when you find a corresponder, you leave the family unit and you start a whole new family unit and you are one with this person, and it's supposed to last the rest of your days. 
And again, there's the picture of no shame in Genesis 2. There's intimacy. There's closeness. There's nothing to fear in that relationship. Okay, there's beautiful high standard. And so when marriage is right in Genesis 2, it is a beautiful, God-given, physically intimate, um, emotionally, spiritually intimate experience in which sexuality is protected in the bonds of marriage. It is to bring us delight. It is to bring happiness to us. And again, it is protected and sheltered in this union. Okay, so there's this beautiful high standard of what this is supposed to be. And you keep reading in Scripture, and you find Jesus shows up so many years later. And Jesus came into a world that wasn't experiencing that high standard of marriage. In fact, they're struggling and they're finding all kinds of reasons to, to divorce each other and to leave each other. And, and so the Pharisees had this running debate of a list of reasons that you could divorce your wife with. Um, some of them were as petty as she burned the toast kind of things. It's like, well, she wasn't that, then I have a right to, I'm just not happy with her so I could divorce her. And so the Pharisees had this running debate about what were legitimate reasons to divorce your wife. And the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 19 came and they tested Jesus with this question. And they're looking at this from this perspective of why should we, why should we split up? But as you read this passage, Jesus doesn't come at this from, well, here's why you should split up. Jesus comes at this from why you should try to work this thing out, why you should be focused on each other, not away from each other. It says this in Matthew 19, the Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And that any cause is kind of the emphasis of their debate. And Jesus answered them, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Quoting Genesis chapter 2. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Again, note their emphasis on we're looking for reasons to, to split here. And then Jesus answered with this different approach and different attitude. And he said to them, Because of your hardness of hearts. He talks about there's an issue inside of us. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And so I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Again, he raises that standard really, really high. An uncomfortable level for us, and if we're honest, when we read that passage, a high standard. But it wasn't just a high standard. It was a holy standard. It was a holy standard that marriage wasn't just about you and me. God always wanted to do something bigger to dis display who he is through marriage. Uh, Ephesians 5 is a beautiful example of that. Ephesians 5 is this beautiful passage where Paul talks about this beautiful thing that's supposed to happen when a husband loves his wife and a wife respects her, her husband. And, and there's this beautiful, intimate thing as they do this, but it's not about them necessarily. It's a bigger thing. This is what he says in Ephesians 5, 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Again, going back to Genesis 2, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it reflects, refers to Christ and the church. And so Paul makes marriage a holier thing, right? It, it means it's not just about two people making it through their days. It's about this picture that this ought to reflect a bigger reality of Christ and his church. And so, however, let each of you love his wife as he loves himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Uh, again, in the verses before that, he has called husbands to lay down their lives. 
in service and sacrifice and love for their wives and for wives to respect and to love their husbands as the church does Jesus. And so marriage shows the gospel. It's this holier thing, right? It's this, it's this thing that paints a bigger picture in a lot of ways. Now, we are created by God for relationship with God, and, and we are turned um, from this and sin, and, and yet God makes a way in this whole redemption story that marriage is, is again, it's about us, but it's a bigger thing than just us. And so it's, it's a higher standard, it's a holy standard, but it's also a happy standard. It's meant to be a place where happiness, not a, not a superficial cotton candy happy, but a deep-souled happiness satisfaction is supposed to take place. Um, and, and I can show you several places, but two references, I guess. When you read Jesus and his parables, just go through and look at the times. Jesus uses the imagery of a wedding feast to describe the coming kingdom. He continually, when he wants to talk about what's it like to have Jesus come back and all of God's people gather together, it's like a wedding feast. Then the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22, uses marriage imagery to describe the second coming of Christ, where the Christ, the groom, comes to church, comes to church, not comes to the earth. He may come to the church, who knows? But it comes to earth to get his bride. And it's this picture of this great celebration that erupts, and there's happiness, and there's joy, and, and there's fulfillment in all of this. And so there's this higher standard as you read the story of marriage in Scripture. And there's this holier picture that's pointing to something bigger than ourselves. But there's this happiness and satisfaction that ought to be found there um, as we love and respect one another. And so that's the Scripture's portrayal of that. But then you get to Genesis chapter 3. Where Genesis 2 it keeps being quoted, but Genesis 3 is the reality in which we live. And if you know that chapter, you know that that's where sin enters into the picture. And all of a sudden, the safety and the intimacy that Adam and Eve experienced after their, before their sin, now after their sin, it's gone. Now there's shame. They realize they are naked, and that's more than just a physical thing. That's the, you see everything about me, so they cover themselves, and there's shame in that, and there's fear, and there's blame, and there's sin, and there's competition with each other, not working togetherness. And so throughout the rest of Genesis, you begin to see this ethic just unraveling in sexual sin and immorality, among many other things. It just fills the pages of Genesis. A lot of destruction is done to the value of people's lives. There is no protection. There is no more shelter for the vulnerable. Great harm comes into the lives of people because this safe, beautiful thing has just been ripped wide open and it's made into something selfish and ugly as we continue through the pages of Genesis. And so you and I live in a Genesis 3 world, right? We have this standard, this higher and holy and happy standard. We have this picture of what could be, and we're drawn to that in so many ways. But yet we live in a Genesis 3 world. And so while that is the standard, here's our struggle. I think for most of us in our practice, marriage and relationships, but marriage in particular, is often a sinful and painful and heavy struggle for a lot of people. Now, you may have found the ideal, right? You may have found that in your marriage, and that's wonderful, and I applaud that, and I'm happy for you. But from my experience, most people wrestle with this relationship. That's a struggle because we are now sinful people. We are broken people. 
um, and it's painful because we hurt each other and we do things to hurt each other, sometimes intentionally. It is heavy. There are a lot of things that we wrestle with as we journey through life together and try to do this thing and play this out. And, and so our sin and the pain that we, we both have, we struggle our own pain, we inflict pain on each other, there's this heaviness of struggle. Right? I don't usually lead with this in my premarital counseling part, just for the reference. I don't want to break the ideal of some young couple who's got the high ideal, but, but this is reality, right? It's not long before that happy young couple is face-to-face with the sin and the pain and the heaviness of making that relationship work. And so we don't live in an ideal world. We don't live in Genesis 2. We live in a Genesis 3 world where sin has shown up and done great damage to all the things that God created and valued. Genesis 3 and following again shows the fall of humanity into sin and all the things that came. And so this picture of unity, of holiness, of safety that was created in the beginning is now gone. And it is replaced with this fallen, broken people who are inflicting their own fallenness, their own brokenness on one another. And that is seen marriages in the Bible, and that is seen as we strive to live out marriages even today. Every wedding has vows to it, um, and those vows are usually beautiful words. I, I take you to be my wife or my husband. I, I have to hold from this day forward. I promise to love you in sickness and health. And all those nice words, um, they're beautiful words. But we probably should include some more words in those words. They probably should include the words, will you take me, a major sinner, and be stuck with me, a major sinner, the rest of my life? Because I'm going to say things that are going to hurt you. And I'm going to fail to do things that would have encouraged and supported you. I'm going to fail you at every turn. Will you take me as that? And not just me. The bride has to say it too. It's a two-way thing. We both come broken and fallen, and we bring that together, and now we, we wrestle with the, the sinfulness and the painfulness and the heaviness of this struggle. And so there's this high standard, and yet so oftentimes we find ourselves in the struggle of life. And so I, I put that before us because I think that helps us as we read 1 Corinthians 7 and following. I think that's in the background of what Paul is about to write, okay? Um, that was just our introduction. I'm just kidding. We'll go fast for the rest of this. But that introduces, I think, as you read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8 and following, um, I, I just think with that in the back of your mind, this makes, uh, this helps us, I think, as we figure this out a little bit. So let's read this text and, uh, and see what it says to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. Let's, we're rewinding a couple of verses just to get some momentum into what we're talking about today. He says, again, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Again, just reinforcing that idea that Paul was a single man. He had great, found great fulfillment in that life. And he was happy for people to stay that way if that's who they were in Christ. There was great things they could do with that life, uh, without other obligations. And they could serve Christ in wonderful, wonderful ways through that. And so, again, we'll come back to that theme next week, um, and he'll spend the rest of the chapter really talking um, a lot about that. But then he goes on in verse 10, um, and he says this. Paul's advice to those who are single, stay single if you can, but to the married, he tells them stay married. He says this in verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. So when he says that little phrase, not I, but the Lord, he's really saying, I'm quoting Jesus um, very closely to what he says. And that's what he quotes basically refers to Matthew 19. 
the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So again, that desire for unity and oneness, uh, just working at that with all of your heart is behind that. Paul gives an unvarnished, unqualified teaching to stay married the best that we can. That's the goal. Now again, the reality is, is there, right? We know we live in a fallen world and, and sometimes things happen and failures come and, and unfaithfulness happens and all those kind of things. But the goal is always, I want this to work. The thing that honors God most is that when we stay together and we honor him through the ups and downs of life, that should be our aim. Now, he doesn't mention, again, some of those exceptions we looked at in Matthew 19 of, of inf unfaithfulness, infidelity, those kinds of things that, that create uh, not a demand for divorce, but certainly create the opportunity that this oneness has been broken. It can be restored through repentance and, and trust being rebuilt over time. Those things can happen, um, but certainly Jesus understands that oneness has been broken. And so, um, again, as Paul walks through there... Uh, Paul, again, referring to the standard, right? Always mindful, though, as we get into what's coming next, that, that there is this painful reality. But he's, sometimes we can, the reality is so real that we lose the vision of the standard that we forget this is what I'm aiming for, right? This isn't easy. This isn't going well. But what's my goal? Is my goal to just escape? Or is my goal to, hey, I want to make this work the best I can, if possible, right? So, so many people... Um, have been in these situations, and when you read words like that, you've experienced the pain of divorce, and that those words sting a little bit. And I understand that um, because divorce is one of the most painful. Someone uses the word vandalizing, soul wrenching things that a person can go through. It, it is that part of your story, and and it just goes with you. And again, um, I love what Romans five says. It says, "Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more." And so. I think not just about marriage, when you, especially if you read like the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is always really good about taking a standard that's always been in the Bible and raising it even higher. You think, well, how in the world could I live out the Sermon on the Mount? I can't do that. Um, and certainly marriage is certainly one of those things that Jesus taught on, and he seems to raise it so high. In fact, if you keep reading in Matthew 19, they come to Jesus and said, well, if that's the standard, then we shouldn't even get married because we can't do that. And, and maybe Jesus was always raising that standard so high to point us to the reality that we can't do this ourselves. We need him. We need his help because we need his grace to abound in our life to help us do what we could never do ourselves. And so there is hope. No matter what our story is in the past, God is not done with us. God does not reject us. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Um, and as we walk through scripture, um, we see that God uses broken um, struggling people, people with things in their past. And maybe it was you, maybe it was not you, maybe it was just things that happened. And so you have to stare at this, though. I think there is something healthy, though, about saying, God, this, isn't, this didn't go how, uh, it doesn't match your standard, and it didn't match my standard. I don't think I've ever sat with a couple um, have, having done their wedding, and, and you sit down and talk about their wedding and what they want it to be, or their marriage and what they want it to be. I've never had somebody say, well, we want to be married about two years and just hate each other at the end of that and just really divorce. That's, what, that's our goal, right? Nobody starts off with that goal. We all believe the standard is a good and beautiful thing, but it's the experience of that that, that we struggle through our sinfulness and our pains, our, our family histories, our, the heaviness of that. All of those things come to bear, and sometimes things end up in a painful place. Um, so Paul encourages them, if you are, aren't married, if you're single, celebrate that. If you're married, stay married. And then finally in verse 12 and following, 
he, uh, he speaks to another situation that they were asking questions about in Corinth because you had people, this was a, Christianity was a brand new thing, and, and oftentimes one spouse would respond to the gospel and the other one would not. So what do we do with that? Um, back in chapter 5, Paul talked about you got to separate yourself from the unholy things and unholy people. And, and so they may be asking, well, should I separate from my spouse if, if they're not a believer and I am a believer? And so he addresses that. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, and this is Paul kind of unpacking greater thinking. He's not quoting Jesus here. He's using apostolic authority to say this is what I believe Jesus would have us to do. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother who has a wife who is not an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever uh, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Uh, for the unbelieving husband, he goes on to say, is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. And so it just emphasizes the idea. You may live in a situation where your spouse is not a believer. And he just says, hey, that's not a reason. Just because you have a difference of opinion on Jesus to walk away from that. Because you may have a redeeming effect, a sanctifying effect, not only on that spouse, uh, but on your children as well. So he says, don't underestimate or miss the opportunity for you to be a light and a witness in that situation. But then he says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul is assuming that God is at work in all of these things. And again, these are verses that we read them and we think on them, and there's so many branches and roots that kind of spread out from all these things and questions in our mind. Um, but when you see those words sanctify and holy in these verses, um, usually those are meant to talk about our standing before God, that I'm holy before God, or I'm sanctified before God. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here, is that your presence in another person's life as a Christian ought to have a sanctifying or holy effect on them. They may not ever respond to Christ, but you are a light. You are salt in that situation. You are a witness in that situation that bleeds out into that home as a light on a hill does. And so he encourages them, if there's an unbeliever, um, you should stay in that environment um, if they will have you. And there's a lot of hope there. They aren't just running the way, other way from Jesus. That There may be something that you will say, do over the course of time that will make a difference for them. The librarian at my college uh, for so many years lived with a good man, a wonderful man, um, but he just wasn't a believer in Christ. He never saw his need for that. And uh, I don't know, it was decades that they, they just did great. She did her thing with church in the college that we went to, and, and yet I'll never forget the time when he finally made that decision and was baptized into Christ. And, and there was this beautiful celebration. Um, and again, her faithful presence in that situation over all those years um, finally, a, a switch was flipped, and, and he saw his need for Christ, and he has been a faithful servant ever since. And so, but, he says, if they do leave you because of Jesus, let them go. You're not bound in such cases. And again, those are easy words to write and heart-wrenching verses to experience, right? And so Paul understands that. He's answering the question, but he says, live in peace, and that peace is rooted not in the harmony of a relationship, that peace is rooted in a connection with Christ that we have. And so he says, um, you're going to have to trust in Jesus in that moment to find your peace there because your circumstances are, are probably going to be uncomfortable and hard. And so I, I just want to encourage us with that passage. Um, 
with the mindfulness of the standard of never allowing ourselves to say, you know what, that standard is old-fashioned, outdated, doesn't matter anymore. God still has that standard for us. Um, but also being humble to the experience of life that, man, life is hard. And we bring our sinfulness and we bring our brokenness and we bring our, all of our stuff into that. And sometimes those things just, it doesn't go very well. And so I just want to finish, I guess, with this. I, I listened to a, a thing this week that just made me come down to this. In our practice, I'll finish this with this point. Marriage is often a sinful, often a sinful painful, and heavy struggle. And so we need the help of a strong Savior. We need the help of a strong Savior. Um, I do, you do, um, in the old acronym or a picture that uh, marriage is not a marriage of two people, but a great marriage is a marriage of three people. It's you and me and Jesus. And, and when that is the reality, um, the opportunity to live to and experience the standard of God for what he wants marriage to be certainly ought to be more attainable when we're both seeking after Jesus uh, in humility and bringing our sinfulness and being transformed in our sinfulness uh, to him, bringing our pains and our hurts from the past and all that we bring, uh, the heavy struggles, we share them with him, and um, we are a better partner for that. David Platt once said this um, as he went through this passage of Scripture and um, just trying to think, how does this apply to all of us? And I, I would just share these um, just as we finish here. Number one, if you're single, maximize your singleness to spread the gospel. Make the most of that for God's glory. Number two, if you are married, love your spouse in a way that portrays the gospel. Again, a high, both singleness and marriage have a higher purpose to them, right? It's not just about me. There's a picture of the gospel at work here Paul reflects on. And so what is one step that you can take today to love your wife or to love your husband or respect your husband as Christ in the church and that playing that out? So what's one thing you could do in that? Number three, if you are considering divorce, remember the power of the gospel. Remember that. I know it's hard. I know we find ourselves in hard and difficult, heart-wrenching places. But don't ever forget the power of the gospel if that's where you find yourself now. Number four, if you are divorced for biblical reason and single, rest in Jesus in your singleness or possibly in a future marriage. If you are divorced for an unbiblical reason and single, um, he says this, repent and rely on Jesus to glorify God in your singleness. And that's not about your worth. It's about just, Lord, this is where I've come. I recognize it just in all my life. I don't meet the standard and, and, and this didn't go the way I wanted it to go. And I'll repent and I'm sorry for that. And, and I just need your grace, especially in that area that is so hard and broke, broken in my life. And number six, if you are divorced for an unbiblical reason and married, repent and reflect the gospel in your current marriage. And so again, all of us, all of those point to the idea that I need the help of a strong Savior no matter where I'm at in this journey. What my story has been, I need Jesus to be my best, to live up to this, this picture of a holy and a high and a happy standard that Christ and the Bible present to us in this and so today, again, I understand this falls in many different situations. Uh, my heart for this is that I, no matter what, where you find yourself today, may you be drawn to Christ who helps and who encourages and gives us all that we need to make the most of where we are right now and to deal with where we are right now. May we turn to him. May we recognize our need for him. May we recognize our own sinfulness before another human being. Be willing to admit that humbly and say, God, I need you to help. And, and I just need you to work in my life in these situations. And so let's pray together as we finish today. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your words. 
Even words that are hard and they confront us, maybe challenge us, or are just difficult to read. I thank you, God, for your grace. Uh, it's easy sometimes when we can read the parts of the Bible we think we're doing well. But all of us stand before your holy standard in some way, shape, or form in our life. And, and we fall far short. And so, Lord, today we come, husbands and wives, or, or single, whoever may, may be in this room today. We come humbly, recognizing that we all bring our sinfulness and our weaknesses and our faults and our struggles um, into our relationships. And so, Father, would you just help us to, uh, to pause on a regular basis to bring our lives before the mirror of your word, to hold ourselves up and to allow it to point out areas of immaturity or areas where maybe we learned habits from our youth or areas where we, uh, we fall short in our words that we say or the attitudes and motives of our hearts or the actions we do or the things that we're not doing that we need to be to show love to someone else. So, Father, help us day by day to reflect our lives upon your word and to allow that to change us day by day. And as we are changed, may we be better equipped to love and to serve not only you, but those that you have put in our life. So, Father, we come humbly today asking. I recognize that these words can land in, in a heavy and a hard way, and so I pray for grace and hope and comfort for those whose story has has found an ending in a struggle or through divorce or through being abandoned or just whatever that may be. I know that's hard and uh, I just pray for your grace and your comfort and your peace and may we uh, not allow the heaviness of the standard to, to overshadow the grace that comes into the lives of broken people. And so uh, we just come asking for that today, seeking that today, Father. And so we come and, and put ourselves before you in that way. I pray for marriages in this room for those who are in that situation, especially today. Father, I pray for husbands to love their wives. May we be done with pride. May we be done with selfishness. May we be done with just wanting it to be about us. And may we learn from Christ to be the servants, to, to put the other above our own wants and needs and, and to be happy to surrender ourselves for our wives. And may wives learn the, uh, to, the joy of, of showing respect to their husbands and um, and just lifting them up and, and being their biggest fan, their hero, even on days where maybe that's hard to do. So, Father, may we learn to love and respect one another in a way that uh, not only honors you, but also brings great happiness into our own lives. So for those that are struggling today, I just pray a special blessing. May they see the hope of Jesus. And may they find that to be a real hope and help to them as they navigate. And so we love you. We thank you for the help that we have in these, these relationships. And we love you and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.